worship team for leading us in that time of just adoration and praise to our Lord. Before we pray this morning, let me say to you, church family, that I love you deeply. It is such a blessing to be able to get up on a Sunday morning and look forward to coming to gather with the people of God to worship our Lord through song, to uh, encourage each other through our fellowship. Uh, just to be able to come and spend some time with you is a cherished time of my week, and I am thankful for that as we gather corporately to worship our Lord. And what a blessing you are. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to join me in, in prayer. We're just going to ask the Lord to bless our time now as we continue to worship Him through the Word. I would ask you, too, to just pray for me that I would um, be able to speak this morning without uh, coughing. I thought I was fine until the last service, and it jumped on me, and one of our senior adult ladies stopped the service and prayed for me, and I didn't cough a time from then on. And so let's just pray right now for... Uh, God's touch, and we're going to just glorify and exalt Him through His Word this morning. So let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are mighty and powerful and worthy of all praise. And Lord, we come before You this morning to continue our time of praise by opening the Word of God and looking at a passage about the exalted Christ. And Lord, to then obey You as you speak through your word. And I know, Lord, in my weakness, I cannot speak your word. I need the ability that you supply. And so I pray for clarity of mind, clarity of speech, and the Holy Spirit ability to deliver the word of God accurately and carefully and powerfully this morning in this service. I ask you now to captivate our attention remove distractions and speak to us with great clarity. Help me exalt the Lord today. For it's in His name I pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. I'm speaking this morning on this subject, the ministry of the glorified Christ. There's a couple of perspectives on our Lord Jesus that we have. One perspective is His earthly ministry. We study the Gospels and we learn so much from our Lord's earthly ministry. We celebrate every Christmas the incarnation of Christ. We celebrate the fact that God became man and dwelled among us. We celebrate the fact that God the Son... Uh, willingly added humanity and came to earth for a purpose to seek and to save that which was lost. He was to live, die, and rise again for the atonement of sin so that all who believe in Him would be saved. And so we celebrate Christ in a manger. But then as we will do in a few weeks, we also celebrate His death and His resurrection. We celebrate the fact that he lived a sinless life while he was here on this earth and he was wrongly accused. He was unjustly attacked. He suffered on our behalf. He was put to death on a cross. Uh, the Word of God teaches us that this was all to satisfy the just wrath of God toward our sin. And then we celebrate 
the third day, that great miracle of the third day when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He will save, he will reconcile, he will forgive, and he will adopt into the family of God all those who believe in him, all those who repent and receive him. And we celebrate those things about his earthly ministry. But then a second thing that we do, we celebrate and we focus on this perspective of our Lord, and that is his second coming. And we think about the coming of the Lord. And we use that as motivation for holy living and sharing of the gospel. And we long for the day that our Lord will return and he will eradicate evil and he will reign and he will establish his eternal kingdom. And we look for that and we study that and we think on that. There are over 300 prophecies uh, that prophesied the first coming of our Lord Jesus that were all fulfilled literally by Jesus of Nazareth. There are eight times more prophecies that point to his second coming. And they too will be fulfilled literally. And so we focus on those two aspects of our Lord Jesus. But we, what we do not often do is reflect upon his glorified state right now and his ministry to us right now. And that's what I want us to focus on today. Now, in the first century, toward the end of the first century, there was a deep need for the church to be encouraged. The book of Revelation was given about 95 to 96 A.D. It was a difficult time for the people of God. The Apostle John had left Palestine uh, in probably the late 60s before A.D. 70, <clears throat> before the Jewish revolt. He settled in Asia Minor. His home base was Ephesus, and he was the lead overseer of the churches in Asia Minor. He was focused on evangelizing and strengthening the churches. The Holy Spirit led him uh, a few years before he received the revelation to write down the Gospel of John uh, as an evangelistic tool to prove and give evidence that Jesus Christ is indeed who he claimed to be. He did live, die, and rise again, and all who believe in him will have eternal life. It was also something used to encourage uh, Christians. But there were some problems going on uh, in the church. The church was compromising. The church was complacent. Things were not that good in the churches of that day. Matter of fact, the flagship church of that area of Asia Minor was Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. And if you'll take a look in chapter 2, you'll find that the Lord Jesus addressed that church. They were doctrinally sound. They were not involved in the compromise of sin. They were looking like they were busy doing the work of God. But the Lord Jesus, who sees all things, knew the true condition of their heart and called them out because they had left their first love. And he said to them, you need to repent and return and do the first works. Or I will come to you and remove your lampstand. And what he meant by that is that power for the mission of the church would be removed and that church would eventually die because 
they had left their first love. And, and that's what happens in churches all over the place. People leave, lose their first love, and then they leave their first love. And what happens is they begin to be focused on their own agendas, and they begin to fuss and fight with one another, and division sets in, and this group leaves and that group leaves. And before you know it, you have a handful of people left, and the place dies because they first of all left their first love, and they compromise in so many areas. And the lampstand is removed. And so then we also see in chapters 2 and 3 where there was compromise with sin in the churches. There was compromise with false teachings in the churches. Pergamos, Thyatira. We, we get over to Laodicea and they had compromised with the world. They had chased after the things of the world. They were more in love with possessions than they were the master. And so because of that, they were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. He said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now, he was not saying, I'd rather you be stone cold and dead uh, in your walk with me or fired up and hot in your walk with me. He's not saying, I'd rather you be one or the other. What he was saying is, you're neither hot nor cold. What he meant by that is, it was a play on the context of Laodicea where the water system came from hot springs. And by the time it was piped into the area, it would be lukewarm. And lukewarm water is good for nothing, isn't it? You can't drink lukewarm water. You'll throw up if you drink lukewarm water. And so it's not good for medicinal purposes either because it's not hot enough for that. So it's useless. And because they had chased after the world, they had become useless to the Lord. Matter of fact, they thought they were rich. And the Lord said, no, really, you're poor, blind, and naked. That's your problem. Uh, you have traded true value, spiritual values and gifts for what the world has to offer you. That was the shape of the church in that day. But then also, there was something even in addition to that compromise within the church. There was an outward persecution Domitian, the, the Roman emperor, had inspired and instigated a widespread, empire-wide persecution against the church. Christians were not liked very well. They were considered an illegal religion. They were slandered because they did not accept all the false gods of the Roman world and the Greek world. And so they were called atheists. They were slandered uh, because of customs that the church has. They were misunderstood by uh, those uh, who were uh, pagan. <clears throat> and what took place is they would make up names and call them. Like they would say they're incestuous and they're cannibals. And that was a play off the Lord's Supper. So they were slandering the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, <clears throat> John himself was on the island of Patmos because of his testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there because of who he was in Christ and because he would not compromise the Word of God. So there was compromise in the church. There was persecution from without. And then there was also probably a discouragement because the Lord had not come yet. Sixty-plus years had passed by and the Lord Jesus had not come. The church needed to be encouraged. And in very difficult circumstances, the Lord Jesus appeared to John and gave him the revelation. 
He encouraged John, letting him know that the Lord Jesus was going to actually pour out his wrath upon the earth, and he was going to bring his righteous judgment, and then he would return. John got a clear vision of this taking place, even got a clear vision of the glorified Christ returning with the armies of heaven in chapter 19. But he also did something else. He encouraged the early church in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation by giving them a glimpse of the glorified Christ. And when we see this description of the glorified Christ, uh, it also uh, indicates and symbolizes His ministry to us even right now. We need this encouragement in the day that we're in, don't you think? There is opposition and persecution in the world around us. Our brothers and sisters are dying simply because they name the name of Christ and they will not compromise. In our own country, that has always been very favorable to Christianity, we find now an opposition in our culture to true Christianity. There are people losing their jobs because they're Christians. There are people being canceled because they're Christians. There are people made fun of and looked over for promotions simply because of their stand for Jesus Christ. People are attacked on social media. They're attacked in many other ways also simply because of their stand on the truth of God in our country today. And in the churches, there is great compromise. There is an adopting of the world to try to fit in with the world and try to alleviate some of those things that... Uh, come against us because of our stand for Christ. There is great corruption within the church today. I am thankful, though, that we're seeing pockets of stirring, of revival taking place in our country, and there's always a faithful remnant, no matter how bleak circumstances look. But what I'm telling you today is we need some encouragement. And maybe some of us are saying, Lord, when will you return? Well, I want to encourage you from the Word of God our Lord is coming someday, and we know that. But I want to encourage you with this vision of the glorified Christ and let you know of His ministry right now to us, His people uh, in this world. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace." and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. The purpose of this message this morning is to encourage and strengthen the people of God as we're reminded of the glorified Christ and his ministry to us right now. John was to send copies of this writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor, starting with Ephesus, then Smyrna, and so on. He would take it, he would have it sent as the normal mail route would go. Each church receiving a copy to be studied, to be read, to be, uh, to be applied to their lives. Uh, this was to minister and strengthen the church. John called himself here in this letter a brother to them. He did not call himself an apostle. He called himself a brother. What humility. He is the last remaining apostle. He is the very one who saw the crucified Christ hanging on the cross and watched him die. He was the one that was commissioned by the Lord to take his mother, the mother of the Lord, into his own home. He was the faithful uh, John the Apostle. And he could have said, hey, this is John the Apostle, the big daddy of them all that's left. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm your brother. And he reminded them of the eternal family that they are part of, where brothers and sisters, uniquely gifted of God, come together to be of one mind and one heart to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live holy and to help one another and encourage one another and hold each other accountable to glorify God while they're on this earth. That's what we must be doing today, my brothers and sisters. He's called a companion in tribulation, the persecution that was taking place. He was a companion in that. He was where he was at the time because of his stand for Jesus Christ. But he's also a companion in the coming kingdom that they waited patiently for. John was on the island of Patmos, that volcanic island about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide, and John's life would be hard there. He would be working and laboring each day, and then this man in his 90s would probably sleep on the hard ground at night. And so it was a difficult existence for him. Now, this island was about 70 miles from his home church. It was about 40 miles off the coast of Miletus uh, in the Aegean Sea. Miletus was a city about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And the Bible tells us here in this text that on the Lord's Day, which is a reference to Sunday, the first day of the week, it's the first time this appears in Scripture. It was picked up in the second century to refer to the day when the church meets. That's the first day of the week. That's Sunday when Christ was raised. So he didn't, he could not go to his church 70 miles away, but he got up on the Lord's day to spend time with the Lord. And the Word of God says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now that means he was in a state of seeking after a meeting with the Lord. He desired to worship the Lord. Let me tell you why many people don't get a lot out of church. It's because they don't come in the Spirit. They come looking at who's there, or, or, or if this person, what this person's wearing, or, or if, I, if whoever I don't like is here, and, and, and all this kind of... We're so worried about those kind of things. We're not in the Spirit, so we don't meet with God. Hey, listen, you come in the Spirit, you will meet with God. He will speak. He will minister 
uh, into your life. It was in that state where supernaturally uh, he was entranced to see glorious visions of the future and also of things taking place in the present. He heard a voice. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Then gave him the instruction to send that letter around that he would receive, that he would write down after seeing this vision. And so he turned to hear this voice, which was like a trumpet. It was resonating and strong and, and authoritative. And so he turned to see it. And as he turned to see where this voice was coming from, he saw seven golden lampstands, and he saw one like the Son of Man in the midst of them walking about. He was dressed with a long robe down to his feet. He had a golden sash on. It would be over his shoulder, across his chest, and down to the, to the waist. And, and he got this picture of the glorious Christ there, and he began to describe all the different aspects that he saw. And through this description, we learn a lot about the Lord's ministry to us now. And I want to show you four things in this text that I pray will encourage you this morning and remind us of the ministry of the glorified Christ. Number one, he is our faithful priest to help us. Verse 13, as he turns and he sees the golden lampstands, the lampstands, the Bible tells us in verse 20, represents the seven churches of Asia. And since the number seven is a perfect number, it also is a representation of all churches of all times. And one like the Son of Man is walking about in them. That's the favorite designation of the Lord Jesus for himself. It was used 81 times in the New Testament. It speaks of his humanity that he added on so he could come and be our atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, this picture of these lampstands says a couple of things about the church. Number one, the gold represents the value of the church. We're so valuable because we were purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more valuable than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We were purchased with His blood. But then also it communicates our mission. The lampstand would, would picture the lamps in the temple and they would be these, this one stem sticking up and three off each side making seven with little bowls on top that you fill with oil and you would light and it would give off light. It communicates the mission of the church to be light to the world. The oil, matter of fact, can be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The book of Zechariah talks about that. And so the Spirit of God indwelling the church, allowing us to be light to the world. The Lord Jesus is called light in John chapter 8 and verse 12. God the Father is called light in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. And the Lord Jesus said of his followers at the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew, verses 14 through 16, he says, you are the light of the world. And he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means you live a holy and obedient life. Let them see your good works. That speaks of an entire life of service to the Lord, a life of holiness, a life that puts to death sin, a life that <clears throat> seeks after righteousness. <clears throat> That's how you shine. And it's a life that shares the gospel of Jesus Christ and invites people to repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. That's how we're the light in this world. 
I want to tell you something this morning. My brothers and sisters, this church is valuable in the sight of our Lord. He is among us today. He is here with us today. Uh, he uses this church to be light in this community as he does other Bible-believing churches. And he uses us to be light in this world uh, around us. He does not leave us. He is with us. He empowers us and strengthens us and enables us to carry out the mission that we've been given. That's part of this priestly work that he does. The robe and the sash is indicative of his priestly ministry. We find that description of the priest in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 4. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, he writes, By the Spirit of God, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that is, he had to become human, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So to come and satisfy the just wrath of God toward our sin, he had to become human. And that was also part of his priestly duties. He was priest and the ultimate sacrifice, sacrifice because he offered himself for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about his high priestly ministry. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, <clears throat> yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, the Lord Jesus came to earth. He lived a sinless life here. He faced temptations. And what he did is he absolutely obeyed the Father. He obeyed the word of truth. With absolute perfection, he did this. <clears throat> and then, listen, that enables him to help every one of us to do the same each day. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what was faced here on this earth. He knows what we're facing each day. And he is the very one who comes along beside us and empowers us and enables us and strengthens us to overcome sin, to overcome the obstacles of the world, to overcome the forces of the enemy, and to live in a way that we fulfill the mission he's called us to do. What we're to do is come boldly before the throne of grace. I'm telling you the reason that sometimes we find ourselves falling and failing over and over again is because we don't come to the throne of grace as we ought. The writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about this great ministry, priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus in Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 27. Listen to what the Word of God says. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He, he's praying for you and me. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, 
separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. Well, this he did once for all when he offered himself. What I'm trying to communicate this morning, and I don't know how well I am, what I'm trying to communicate is there's a faithful high priest who has saved us to the uttermost. He is with us each day to strengthen us and empower us and enable us. If we depend upon him, what I'm telling you is everything we need for every day of this life is supplied by our faithful high priest. He is ministering to his people even as I stand to preach this morning. Secondly, we also learn that he is our all-knowing Lord. And verse 14a says that he, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. This reminds me of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, where Daniel recorded this. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. That describes God the Father. This is one of those Trinitarian statements. God the Father and God the Son are being described in the same way. Matter of fact, the very same chapter that we're dealing with today in verse 8 describes God as the Alpha and the Omega. And then in verse 11, Christ is, uh, says of himself, he is the Alpha and the Omega. It speaks uh, again of the, the Trinity. The white hair <clears throat> represents his eternal nature, his age. In the culture we're in today, we have stopped sometimes honoring age. We, the Bible tells us that the glory of an old man is his gray hair, or lack thereof, hair. <laughs> and what's left is gray. <clears throat> sometimes what we'll do is we'll just overlook that and not think any value in the aged, but we are foolish for that. This also represents not only his eternal nature, but it also represents the white, represents his purity and righteousness, <clears throat> and also ultimately represents his wisdom and all-knowingness. He knows everything. He is all-wise. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom." And knowledge. There is a wisdom of this world, and there is the true wisdom that comes from God. And the Lord imparts to His people His true wisdom when we seek after it. <clears throat> See, we are enabled to understand things and to be wise like nobody else can be because in the natural state of lostness, the wisdom of God is unattainable for most people. You're not going to be able to, to um, attain depths of God's wisdom in that natural state of lostness. 
when a person is saved and the Spirit of God comes to live within a person, that person is enabled to understand things he or she could not have understood apart from the Spirit of God imparting knowledge and enabling them to understand the Word of God to levels they could not apart from the Spirit of God's ministry in their lives. God gives to us <clears throat> wisdom. And when we obey His Word, <clears throat> then the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, we can experience success and prosperity in this life by God's definition. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel here. I'm talking about by God's definition. And the Bible says, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. But this also lets us know this. And that is that our Lord knows all things. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. He knows what's around the corner. He knows what's in the distant future. He knows everything at all time because he's all-knowing. And he, the all-knowing one, ministers his truth and understanding, knowledge and wisdom to those that he has redeemed. And somebody ought to say, praise the Lord. A third thing we see about his ministry is this. He is our all-present Lord. Look at verse 14b. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. That means his piercing gaze sees everything. Nothing gets past him. He knows what's happening in every crevice of the universe right now. He knows exactly what's happening in your mind and your heart right now. He knows every thought. He knows every heart, a heart's motive of every person that's on this planet right now. He sees and knows it all. His piercing gaze is everywhere. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, and there is <clears throat> no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let me give you some application for this. Because he sees and knows everything and he's all present, it means this, he knows what you need. He knows what I need. He knows what threats we face. He knows what obstacles stand before us. He knows <clears throat> what the enemy is doing against us. He knows at all times what's happening. Nothing ever takes him by surprise, but also understand this. It means that he knows exactly the condition of our hearts. We cannot pull the wool over his eyes. We can fake out everybody else around us, but we cannot fake out him. He sees everything. That's why he's the righteous judge. And you will stand before him one day, and I will stand before him one day and be judged by the all-present one, the all-knowing one, the one who sees everything, and we'll be held accountable for how we have lived our lives for him. Every lost person will stand before him this rejected the gospel and every one of them will be judged according to everything they've done because he's seen it all. He is all present. And since he is all present, he also knows how to help us. 
and how to enable us. A fourth thing we see about him is this. He is our all-powerful Lord, verses 15 through 16. There are several ways in which we see this. First, he's described as the fact that his feet are like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. This is a sign of stability and strength. This means that he cannot be moved. No enemy can move him. But what he does is he advances at will. Nothing, no matter how big the obstacle is, no matter how big the enemy is, there's no match for the one who has brass feet, who keeps marching forward to conquer every enemy in his path. He is strong and steadfast. That's why he said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, he said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is describing the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what the Lord says is this, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He will not. Now, I want to tell you this. The enemy is no match for our Lord. Are y'all with me? He's no match for our Lord. And I will tell you this, no matter how difficult you think it is today to be a Christian, no matter how difficult you think it is today to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, what I'm telling you is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of strength and who will advance His kingdom, is the one who uses us and empowers us to do that. Y'all with me? Then we go on to see this. And that is that his voice is like the sound of many waters that speaks of the authority of his voice. It speaks and supersedes all other voices that are speaking. The culture today is screaming loud. But our authority is the voice of our Lord. Our flesh screams loud. <clears throat> but... The voice of our Lord is our ultimate authority. And it's interesting how he uses the waterfall illustration. Have you ever been beside a big waterfall? Anybody ever been beside a big waterfall? Only me, I guess. But here's, here's, here's what happens when you're there. The water is so loud, you can't hear birds chirping. You couldn't hear a plane fly over you. You couldn't hear a, a vehicle drive by on the road. You can barely hear the person that's that's standing beside you because the water is so loud. This speaks of the authority, emphasizes the authority of the Word of God. It is to be louder than every other voice. And I'll tell you this, when you seek the Lord and you get close to Him, then His voice does become the loudest one in your life. Many of us, we, we don't seek the Lord right now, and because of that... Our flesh and the world system and the culture, everything else is the loudest voice speaking to us. But what I'm telling you is, our faithful Lord is speaking with authority to His people. We're to obey Him. He's described also as one having a two-edged sword out of His mouth. Now, 
That speaks of His Word. And the Word of God is called, uh, uh, has the sword imagery in a couple of places. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 says we put on the full armor of God and describes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, for the Word of God is, is, um, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and is a uh, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But let me tell you what kind of sword we're talking about here. It doesn't just cut. It kills. It's the sword that can come against the enemies of God. It's the sword that can chastise the people of God. Over in chapter 2, verse 17, or 16, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16, we see that in the, in the church where there's compromise and the Lord says, you better get this mess straightened out. This is the southern version of, of that. You better get this mess straightened out or I'm going to come and I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to tell you this, my brothers and sisters, when we start trying to disrupt the people of God, hinder the growth of people, when we stop trying to, we try to hinder the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are directly opposed to the Lord who has the two-edged sword. And he chastens and he'll also overcome every enemy. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish through that. But there are times when the Lord, he takes care of his enemies. If you know what I mean. And we can depend on him. We have no need to fear. We have no need to fear this world. Because the one who has the two-edged sword is the one who uses his people to do his will. And we're to trust in him and that ministry. Finally, he's described as shining like the sun. It speaks of his glory. And do you know that he reflects his glory through his church? In verse 16, the word of God says he's got the seven stars in his hand. Now, people debate whether that is an angel, actually, or if it's a pastor. I've always leaned toward it meaning the pastors of those seven churches. And if that's the case, then guess what? He's got us in his hand. Well, that's what he tells me elsewhere anyway. In John chapter 10. What a vision of the current ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no need for the church to be discouraged. There's no need for the church to be defeated. Because we just need to understand what our Lord's doing right now and depend on that. And I'll close by telling you this. Here are three things we ought to do in response to what I've just said. Number one, we ought to be in awe of the Lord. We should be in awe of the Lord. Verse 17, John fell down as dead at his feet. And I'll tell you this. The more you and I can die at the feet of Jesus the better off we'll be. The Word of God teaches us we're to die to self. And we'll die to self at the feet of Jesus. Secondly, we ought to trust Him. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the sovereign over all. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who, who was alive, who was dead, and is alive forevermore. He is the one who has established and secured our redemption. And if we can trust him with our eternity, we can sure trust him with everyday activity right now. And third, we should obey him. You know, every Christian should be obeying the Lord. This great, glorified Christ, every day we're called to die to self and obey Him. Are we? Can I ask that question today? Are we obeying Him? And if not, what needs to happen today is for us to repent of that, confess that, Return to following Him wholeheartedly today. Maybe you are being faithful to the Lord and you're discouraged or you were and now you've been reminded of what the Lord's doing right now in your life and it's encouraged you. I pray it has. And maybe what we need to do today is spend some time praying as the people of God, just surrendering ourselves before Him, dying to self, Depending upon Him, connecting with the ministry that He provides <clears throat> for His people. And then there's probably some in this room that are not saved. You've not called on Jesus to be your Savior. You have not repented. You have not turned from your sin to Him and trusted Him as your Lord and Savior. And so because of that today, you are still separated from Him. But today, if you will believe, today, if you will repent, receive Him... He will forgive you, make you right with God, adopt you into the family of God. He will change your life. He'll give you eternal life. We're going to stand to sing, and if that's how God's speaking to you, then I want you to come to me and say, I need Jesus as my Savior. Others, altars open. Maybe some need to join the church today. You just you sense that's what you need to do. You're a saved person. You want to be a part of this church family. You want to use your gifts here. I invite you to come. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord God, you have overcame all of my weaknesses to deliver your word today in such a way that people understood it. I pray you overcame every distraction, Lord God, for people to hear what you wanted them to hear today. And now I pray, Lord God, we will not resist this. I pray we will not say that, well, that was a nice little message and just move on. But I pray, Lord God, that right now there's a work of the Spirit of God in us that brings us to a point of surrender, a point of dependence, a point of adoration, a point where we die before you, Lord God, uh, and, and we begin to live uh, with Christ in us, Lord, in such a new and fresh way. Lord, I pray for those who need to be saved today to respond to the gospel. So have your way now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please.